Welcome to the Filling the Pell podcast. I'm Greg Ashman and my very special guest on this episode is Dylan William. Um, welcome, Dylan. Glad to be here. Um, how are things in the States at the moment with COVID and all that sort of business? We're, we're coming out of a lockdown here in Victoria, but then bits of Melbourne are going back in because we've had a bit of a, an outbreak. Um, what, what are things like there at the moment? Uh, crazy. Um, Texas and Florida uh, eased the lockdown and now they're just, um, just basically the, the, the rates of infection is just going through the roof. And so uh, it's just not clear whether the politicians have the stomach to actually roll back or just delay going to the next phase. But I think in Texas and Florida, it's going to be very bad. Yeah, it's interesting. They've got to have some guts like our premier has tried to lock down certain suburbs of Melbourne. And the people who live in those suburbs are not happy about it. Um, mm. So it, it's pretty hard once people have already been through a lockdown to, because they know what it's like now to put them back in. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So obviously um, a lot of people, I didn't really need to give you much of an introduction. You're probably the most well-known figure in education research. And one of the reasons that you're so well-known is because of your work on formative assessment. Um, and for me, in my career, I, I would go, I would, I would reflect and think there are two step changes where I really improved what I was doing in the classroom. The first was when I started to adopt more, when I finally understood what it was all about, and I started to adopt more formative assessment routines in the classroom, and it was reflected back to me that a lot of the things I thought I was teaching weren't being learnt, and then I could adapt to that and, and change. And then the second step change was when I adopted some of the principles of cognitive load theory and actually more of the stuff I taught in the first place started to, to sink in. Now, I'm interested, obviously, you've, you've, you've been, you're very closely associated with the research and formative assessment. Everyone of my generation read Inside the Black Box, uh, your, your booklet with um, Paul Black. How, how did you come to be interested in formative assessment and, and the research around that? It's a very strange story, actually, because I taught in schools in London for seven years. Uh, I had an argument with my head teacher and was lucky enough to be offered a, a one-year temporary research fellowship at Chelsea College working on this project called Graded Assessment in Mathematics. And I'd been associated with this project um, as a kind of teacher-practitioner um, helper. And the idea was that we would assess our students and then use those assessments to decide what to do next. And that was building on what I'd been doing in the SMILE project in London from about 1977. And the idea there was it was individualized learning in mathematics. A child would get, say, 10 pieces of work. They would mark their own work on the tasks, but then they would do a test to which they did not have the answers. The teacher would mark the test, and on the basis of the kids' responses to the test questions, were either set more challenging, more consolidation, or simpler work. So the interesting thing was, I just, I never trained as a teacher, I just ended up in this school that did this thing, and that was what maths teaching looked like to me. The idea was, you find out what kids have learned, and you adjust what you're doing on an individual basis, when you find out what, what understanding they have of what they've studied. Right. And so I did that for, set for, eight, for you know, seven years. Uh, as I said, I, I then joined this research project 
And I worked on that. And we didn't, I think we may have used the word formative occasionally, but the idea really was it was continuous assessment and it would lead towards an alternative route to the standard school leaving qualifications at the time, which were CSEs and O-levels. Yeah. I then um, somehow got a job as a lecturer and I started, so, so uh, I, got, I got a job as a lecturer in, at Chelsea College, became part of King's College. I ended up running the maths PGCE. Uh, and then what happened was that our teams are developing national curriculum assessments in um, English, maths, science and technology, got these big contracts to develop national curriculum assessments for 14 year olds. I had originally been involved in the maths proposal, but when our consortium was successful in getting contracts for English and maths and science and technology, I was asked to coordinate the whole consortium. So I spent two years working on national curriculum assessments. And then there was a change in, in Secretary of State, uh, John McGregor, the previous man had been very interested in what we were doing. Kenneth Clark came along and decided what we were doing was elaborate nonsense and sacked us all. And um, I went back to my job as a lecturer. Yeah. And I, I had a choice about whether to carry on um, working on my original PhD thesis, which had been about children's logical thinking, or just write up what we've been doing in national curriculum assessment. And I decided the second thing was easier. So I wrote my thesis um, up, about basically just two years, I just wrote up what I'd been doing in national curriculum assessment. Yeah. So I did an, a, a PhD on assessment. And so from then on, that, that was the focus of my scholarly work. So my professorship, my personal chair in assessment, is actually for my work in summative assessment. Ah, okay. Yeah. And, you know, the formative stuff came along later. It's yeah. interesting, I think, that both Paul Black and I started work on formative assessment. Me, after I got my personal chair. Paul, after he retired. Uh, you know, because we, were, we, we thought we were taking a huge risk. We, we didn't think we had anything to prove anymore. And therefore, we thought we'd explore this thing. Yeah. Paul was invited by the assessment reform group to review the research on classroom assessment, which I think the people who commissioned us thought meant classroom summative assessment. Yeah. We decided to update two big reviews by Gary Natriello and Terry Crooks that had been conducted 10 years earlier. Paul didn't feel able to do it on his own, so he asked me. Me, I guess, because he'd been my mentor, he'd been my kind of supervisor, uh, because everybody had to have a supervisor in those days in university life. And so we set working on that. We delivered the review, published in an academic journal, 67 pages long, you know, dense reading. Yeah. And the people who had commissioned us said, fine, thank you. But Paul and I thought, hang on a minute, this, this is a waste if we just stop there. So then, even though the people who commissioned the report didn't actually have any interest in this, we wrote this booklet called Inside the Black Box. Yeah. Because we thought we should actually take this further. And Inside the Black Box is really a polemic. Yeah. It's really going beyond the evidence given. We, we actually just pooled our experience and say, what does this mean? And so we, were, we knew we were going beyond the evidence given, but we knew that our experience counted for something. And so that then was published in the US in a teacher's journal, in the UK as a booklet. And then we also started publicizing it. So we'd learned from people like Philip Aidey with his cognitive acceleration program. You, you can't just publish the research and expect people to pick it up. You have to go out and tell the story. So then Paul and I, 
embarked on a quite a, an intensive campaign of you know, basically responding positively to every single request we got to talk about this stuff. And you know, we created this kind of groundswell. And then of course, and you've hinted at this already, then of course it became tangled up in the government's attempts to wrap formative assessment into their key stage three strategy, which they were calling, the main component they were calling assessment for learning. Yeah, so that was key stage three, just for, for people that aren't familiar with the UK system, it's uh, 11 to 14 year olds, isn't it? It's there. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the Labour government had had a strategy for numeracy and literacy for primary schools, and they decided to try to make their work with 11 to 14 uh, as coherent as possible. So they developed this thing called the key stage three strategy. Because formative assessment was lying around, they thought they'd wrap that in. Now, the people who commissioned the inside the black box work, the assessment reform group, had preferred the term assessment for learning. And they published a booklet called Beyond the Black Box, which shows they didn't understand what inside the black box was about. <laughs> For us, the black box was the classroom. Yeah. You know, government were looking at inputs and outputs yeah. and ignoring the processes inside. So beyond it's, the black box is like the yard or the, the playing field. Or yes, the... exactly. So we were, you know, we, we were using the term formative assessment because we thought it had some clarity. They prefer the term assessment for learning. Yeah. And I've only just become aware of this, but all the people on the assessment reform group were, were policy people. They were originally the British Educational Research Association's assessment policy task group hmm. and they'd all been involved with records of achievement and of oh, course I had one of those I, uh, yeah. when I, I, I was so in 92 uh, that would have been I had a I had a national record of achievement that I had to put all my certificates in and things like that I still got mine <laughs> I think it was called the wine list wasn't it it was kind of purple and it looked yeah. like a wine list I still keep my degree certificates in it um so these people had really been interested in summative assessment with a positive backwash. Yeah. And so they used this term assessment for learning. And Paul Black and I said, well, yeah, this is fine. Assessment for learning is any assessment that is given with the primary purpose of, of, of promoting learning yeah. rather than certifying. Yeah. So if you um, look at the, the work of the, of the uh, assessment reform group, and particularly they produced sort of 10 principles of assessment, they talked about assessment as being motivating and being a key professional skill and all those other kinds of things. And that is all completely compatible with summative assessment. Yeah. So in our second book, Working Inside the Black Box, which wrote up some of the work we'd done with teachers, we said that assessment for learning is any assessment where the priority is promoting learning. An assessment can be used to promote learning if, the, if teachers or students actually use the information from the assessment yeah. improve teaching and learning, then it becomes formative. Yeah. So for us, formative assessment was a kind of subset of assessment for learning. And for us, we've kept to this term formative assessment, even so people use assessment for learning. Um, a good example, given current interests, is uh, practice testing. Yeah. Practice testing would be assessment for learning. Yeah. It wouldn't be formative assessment unless the results of the assessment are used to inform teaching and learning. Ah, yes. Yes. I see what you mean. So you, if you're doing retrieval practice to strengthen the, the schemas and, or, or, or whatever, um, that's, that's going to enhance learning, but it's not unless you're going to use the information to then 
alter something about how you're going to teach, it wouldn't necessarily be formative. I'd go even further. Yeah. Telling kids there's a test on Friday yeah. and not giving the test on Friday would be assessment for learning <laughs> yeah. because the threat of the assessment has actually caused the kids to revise for the test. Yeah. Giving hopefully. the assessment, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> giving the assessment but not marking it would improve learning through retrieval practice, yeah. but wouldn't be formative assessment. It would be assessment for learning, but it wouldn't be formative assessment. And I'm still on, I'm still on the fence about whether, if kids find out the answers that are incorrect and you get the benefit of the hypercorrection effect, yeah. then that probably is formative assessment. And it's certainly formative assessment if teachers or students use the information to adjust what they're doing to better meet the learning needs. So I, it's, it's, I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of confusion. Um, around it certainly i experienced that um key stage three strategy um i was a head of science and we had to implement the the key stage three strategy and assessment for learning was part of that then it mushroomed and you had this whole uh, pedagogy and all these sort of different strands to it but assessment for learning was very much there at the start um but my experience of that is very different to my current understanding and I think that there are a lot of misconceptions. Um, a lot of people think a formative assessment is a property of an object, like, like this is a formative assessment, not right. a process. Uh -huh. um, and I think that you, you say, right, um, they want to schedule the formative, like we're going to do a formative assessment today. Um, and for me, the, the, the real power um, came about when I realized that it, simply just asking kids questions and getting that feedback is an act of formative assessment. And things like um, when I started putting a box on the board um, for my students to put the numbers of any homework questions that they'd struggled with. And so they'd write up question four and I'd go, oh, why, why, why can't you do question four? I thought we covered that beautifully last lesson. So I'm there, I'm going through question four, but it forced me to address things that otherwise I'd have skated over because I would have just assumed that it was fine and it had been addressed fine. And so that's where the power came from me. And it was never about, um, you know, these, these like the models where kids are going to sit down and they're going to do something called a formative assessment. Right. So, so, I mean, I think that there's, there's no doubt that the, people got hold of the wrong end of the stick. And it was partly by, because of the response of the Labour government in England. David Miliband was schools minister at the time, was education minister. Um, and he pushed this idea of assessment for learning as being tracking students' progress. So yes. secondary schools in England had these immensely complicated spreadsheets where they tracked students' progress and made predictions. And so the whole thing got sidetracked because that's what they called assessment for learning. It yes. also got um, derailed even further when the people developing national curriculum assessments, educational testing service, the American company screwed up the um, administration of the tests and the, the, the government had to do something and therefore they pretended that teacher assessment would be brought into service instead of the national curriculum assessments. Yeah. And they had this initiative called Making Good Progress and they had these grids and that was also they called formative assessment, but it was completely summative um, yeah. with, with, with a formative brush. Now, the, the real problem is that I don't want to dismiss those things that people call formative assessments. No. Because 
learning as a change in long-term memory. Yeah. And therefore, you can't judge learning in the moment. You need to check sometime down the road whether the students still remember this stuff. And the, so we have this big debate in the U.S. now. Uh, when I first moved to the U.S., I was getting people to, to realize that, you know, formative assessment is not just this thing that happens every six to ten weeks. Yes. But now the pendulum has swung so far over that people now don't even want to call those six to ten week things formative assessment. They say, well, that's not, you know, that's not formative assessment. But it is if you yeah. use information in group teaching. So I think the way I've thought of this now, and the only way I think it makes sense, is to think of the terms formative and summative as descriptions of the kinds of inferences that we draw from assessment results. So yeah. the same assessment can be used formatively and summatively. So, for example, I can give kids a mock exam and I can actually see that this kid's on track and this kid's not on track. And that's pretty much a summative assessment. But if I can see that one kid is having trouble with a particular aspect of the subject, then that's a formative conclusion that I draw. And so I, for me, I think that the only way it makes sense is to think of formative and summative as descriptions of the conclusions that we draw from assessment results, yeah. not descriptions of the assessments themselves. Yeah, we have, um, we do a thing that at our place called question of the week. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea of this is it's um, not, it's about a 10 minute question. So it wouldn't be an entire exam paper or something. And it's been displaced by about three weeks from when the content was taught. So that's, I don't know why we settled on three weeks. And if evidence came that a different time frame would be better, but it seems to work. So we teach something three weeks later, there'll be a question of the week. Uh, the kids don't know exactly what it's going to be on. That they, they don't, that we don't tell them it'll be three weeks from, you know, they, they can't necessarily work it out. Uh, so they, but they know they've got this question of the week. We, they do the question of the week. Um, we give out work solutions at the end of the 10 minutes. They correct their own, so they self-assess. We take it up and we monitor. We look for between-class differences because we've got a very tight curriculum, so we teach everything in a very similar way. And so we look if there's a difference between the classes, we'll... we'll we try and figure out what might have caused that. Um, but we'll also then um, try use those, like often it's surprising, kids will be able to do something we thought was really tricky or they'll struggle yeah. on something. And then that feeds back into our program. So there are inferences from that that are formative and there are, there are elements of it that are based on kind of space practice and retrieval practice. Um, so, it is a it is an object, I suppose. The qu the question of the week is the object, but but you can make different inferences from it. Exactly, and I, and I think that you know one of the pushbacks I get is when I talk about formative assessments, particularly the short cycle stuff, the minute by minute and day by yeah. day stuff. They say that's just good teaching, and of course it is. Yeah, uh, Madeline Hunter, the American educator, talked about the importance of frequent checks for understanding. Yeah, but what Paul Black and I've been trying to do is to get people to understand that. The crucial thing is the quality of the evidence that you have. If you don't plan the questions you're going to use, the evidence you're going to get from students isn't going to be insightful into their learning. And if you're only hearing from the usual suspects, yeah. the confident kids are willing to share their answers with you, you can't possibly meet the learning needs of all the students. So the equation is very simple. Better evidence leads to better decisions by the teacher, leads to better learning. But using the term formative assessment, I, I hope highlights the quality of the evidence that you have for the decisions you're going to make. And that's why I think it's right to bring this assessment focus to teaching and learning, to just questioning, as you say, because you highlight 
what conclusions do I want to draw and what evidence do I have for those conclusions? You know, as Lee Cronbach said many years ago, an assessment is simply a procedure for drawing inferences. Yeah. The question is, what evidence do you have and what inferences are you entitled to draw? I think that, that those, there's a couple of points there. The, the idea that people tell you it's just good teaching. Have you read um, How Obvious by Greg Yates? Of, no. It's a really good paper. And he talks about how he presents these findings of cognitive psychology, mainly from the teacher effectiveness research, you know, the process product right. stuff and um, expertise research. And he presents it to room, for, room fulls of people. And he often gets the response, well, that's just obvious. But then <laughs> if he actually surveys them and says what makes us an effective teacher, they don't give him the things that he's talking about in those presentations. And he thinks it's an, an odd effect and he riffs on that. It's quite a, it's a good paper. It's a, it's a good sort of personal reflection on it. And I always think of that like nothing was, things to, that are obvious to me now are only obvious to me because of, um, you know, the curse of knowledge. They weren't obvious to me early in my teaching career. It wasn't obvious to me. Uh, in 2002, that I should ask a question and get every kid to respond on a mini whiteboard. That was not something that was obvious to me. No, um, no. It is now, and we all do yes. it at my place now, um, because as you say, if, if you're only hearing from three kids who want to respond, that's not good assessment evidence. You did, um, but uh, so I think I'm, I'm very, you know, it, it, it can sound very, um, Obvious, it can sound well, that's just good teaching, but I think it's still important to get that message out there because people don't know these things. Well, and of course, the other thing is, as I keep on pointing out, the job of research is to distinguish between the things that are obvious and true and the things that are obvious and false. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, this, this is why we do the research. Yeah, and um, it fits as well. Like uh, I said, I've had the two step changes, was the first was a better use of formative assessment. And second was, was cognitive load theory. And the two things work quite well together. Like now we do, um, so you, you've got a multi-part math problem um, and you're teaching students how to do this. And initially, a few years ago, what I'd do is I'd demonstrate all the parts of how to do the problem. And then I'd say, right, now you do it. And that, if they do it on a mini whiteboard, you know, uh, five minutes later, I'd have a look and half of them are wrong. And now what I do, is I do it, I break it down. I say, now, first of all, say it's, um, uh, we do them, say, for uh, circular functions questions. So first, tell me the reference angle. Everyone hold up the reference angle. Okay, so, so now I can figure out where the problem is. It's some kids don't know the reference angles. So, ah, so we need to fix that. And then rather than getting to the end of, you know, a four or five step um, process and not knowing which of the steps is the one where they got off the bus. So I think these things, that's the very minute by minute, that's, that's the micro level of formative right. assessment. Um, but, but, for, but for me, I think, I mean, you know, the, the thing, I, mean, I think I got that quite long, you know, quite early on. Yeah. The thing that I really resisted from, from a cognitive low theory for many years was this idea that had been at the heart of my teaching as a school teacher, which is that if kids satisfactorily complete a learning activity, and that by the end of the lesson, they can all do it individually, unaided, then they've got it. And I think that, the, you know, the, the kind of road to Damascus experience for me was when I read some of the John Sweller's research that showed that you could actually have students be successful in the learning 
and yet two, three weeks later have no recollection or not even notice the pattern. Yeah. And I think that, that that's when I started p- putting these pieces together, that, that you know, that le- this, this, this learning process is so mysterious, and which is why, you know, this is why neuroscience is no use, because, you know, you can't watch synapses getting stronger. You can watch cognitive activity in real time, but that's not learning. Learning is what happens over the two or three weeks where those things get transferred into long-term memory, to use the simplest, simplest model. And just, just the whole idea that the fact that kids can do it now on their own is no guarantee that they've learned it in the sense that Paul Kirshner and his colleagues define learning. And, you know, and we, we, we're going to get involved in this discussion, but what, what I'm clear about, and I don't care what words we use, we have to have different words for what it is that happens at the end of the lesson. Yeah. And what happens if kids can remember it two or three weeks later? And I think that's the crucial thing. Yeah. And, and every teacher knows this. Every teacher knows that you can get kids to do something at the end of a lesson and two weeks later, it's all gone. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, we, don't, we don't plan on teaching as if that was true. No. And, and you're right. If, you, if you're swinging on a pendulum between long cycle assessment and really short cycle minute by minute stuff like I was just describing and you can't see the whole thing the whole from the going from the minute to the three weeks to right. the two months then you've got a problem yeah and you know and that's why you know I, I, I'm now much more sort of holistic in my approach talk about long cycle media cycle and short cycle formative assessment and you have to do them all but they have slightly different purposes the you know the the minute by minute stuff is to help you make better decisions so that kids don't leave the room with the wrong idea. Yeah. But you have to be cautious because that doesn't mean they've learned it. And the fact that all kids have got the right idea at the end of today's lesson does not mean that any learning has taken place. But it's That's better than if they don't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. They are far more likely to remember it if they have the right understanding leaving the lesson than if they don't. Um, in your um, book, um, Creating the Schools Our Children Need, um, you, you actually you look at um, some of the, the possible ways that we could improve uh, school systems and you right. reject a few and you look at some more um, promising approaches. And one of those, which is quite relevant um, in Australia at the moment because we're having a curriculum review, uh, one of those is the idea of uh, a knowledge-rich curriculum. Um, how did you arrive at the idea that um, a knowledge-rich curriculum could be a good lever um, for improvement? I think it's one of those really slow realisations. When I was teaching maths back in the 1970s and 80s, I, you know, I thought it was really great if kids were engaged and they were thinking. I did a lot of uh, activities for the Graded Assessment Project. Uh, we had things like um, running a guest house. And we do these really complicated logical thinking tasks with kids. And so somebody wants a double bedroom with a sea view, you know, and really authentic tasks. And kids loved it. And they were excited. And, you know, I thought that was really good math teaching. And then as I got, you know, did more and more research in this area, I became increasingly concerned that they were engaged, but they weren't learning the mathematics. And these things were really close to being IQ tests. They were, you, you were practically measuring working me- memory, in fact. And I, and I became increasingly convinced, you know, and having rejected people like Ausubel and Gagnier and those psychologists who talked about the importance of, of knowledge, I just, and I slowly realized that they were 
they were right. And it, it, was, it was just a weight of the evidence in the end. Yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't say, I couldn't find fault in any in the evidence. And I realized, and then, you know, basically John Sweller summed it up beautifully. He said, you know, novices have to use thinking skills, experts use knowledge. So taking science, for example, um, you know, I, I taught some science, not as much as I taught maths, but I became, I, I suddenly realized that getting kids to discover principles like, you know, when, when you touch a cold door handle on a cold day, it feels like the cold is coming into your hand. Yeah. But your enculturation as a physicist lets you think about this in a way saying, actually, the, the metal is conducting the heat away from my hand. Now, the point is, nobody's going to, or maybe Newton, but very few people are going to figure that way of thinking about the world out for themselves. And you waste an awful lot of kids' time by getting to invest in, to, to, to discover this stuff for themselves. And I became convinced that science in particular is a, basically a process of model-based reasoning. And it just works better if we give kids the models and give them practice in using them to think with. Yeah. And so... You know, just and I just saw more and more of this in different school subjects, just becoming more and more convinced that what we needed to give, rather than giving kids practice in thinking, we needed to give them more stuff to think with. Yes. I think that, 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 that is really, the, 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 the aim of a curriculum is to give kids more stuff to think with, and it's very inefficient to get kids to discover this for themselves. And you're basically giving a huge unfair advantage to high working memory kids. Yes. So yeah, so some of those high working memory kids will figure this out for themselves, but that's not what I want education to be about. You know, I accept the heritability of IQ, but I don't think it tells you what kind of world society we want. For me, it's, you know, whether we use the term IQ or not, some kids find learning school stuff more difficult than others. It's what Roland Frey calls the basic physics of education. And the question is, what are you going to do about that? And I'm saying we need to make sure that low working memory kids learn just as much as they can, hopefully as much as high working memory kids. And I became more and more convinced that that basically um, just being clear about the knowledge we wanted kids to acquire and giving them things to think with was the way to do that. Yeah, in in the um, in cognitive load theory, uh, the idea is that you've either got to process things in working memory uh, as in discrete items or you can effectively draw on an entire schema from long-term memory uh, which can be as complicated as you like and yeah. that that and that's then you don't have to process that as an item in working memory so by developing those schemas have you heard um are you familiar with are you in sorry I'm, I'm digressing slightly you think about the door handle did you know right. stellan olson's view about non-monotonic change yes so um I, the, I thought that was quite profound the idea that uh, you probably never lose the schema that says that the heat flow the cold flows into your hand it just gets out competed by the schema that has a greater utility that you learn from your science lesson. So it's not a process necessarily of trying to destroy or cut up these uh, wrong schemas. It's a process of creating, making a new one that outcompetes the previous one. I thought that was very right. But I I don't even, I don't even think outcompete is the right model. No. That's why I'm now very dismissive of all the conceptual change literature in science. Yeah. Because, you know, I think there's, there's quite convincing evidence that university physicists still have that initial reaction 
yes. we had when we were 10 years old. Yeah. And this is, I think, Daniel Kahneman's work on system one and system two, thinking fast and slow. So I think what good physics education does, for example, to carry on with that particular metaphor, yeah. is installs a critic. So you initially think that the cold is coming into your hand, but what then happens is your enculturation as a physicist says, ah, no, the best way to think about this is as a problem of energy transfer. And so, I, I, yeah, that's why I think that conceptual change just doesn't go anywhere because we, we never get rid of those, of those schema. We just learn not to select them. Yeah, and things like cognitive conflict, which uh, are supposed to, to bring about these conceptual changes, yeah. the, the, the research literature on that is quite mixed, would be to put yeah. it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It, one of the issues that we have in ours with uh, people when I'm trying to say make the case for a knowledge rich curriculum is people say uh, the current discussion is, oh, well, it's, there's too much stuff in the curriculum. It's too yeah. cluttered. We need to declutter it. But they also want to hold on to we have and they're conceptualized differently in different education systems. But here we call them general capabilities. So things like um, creative and critical thinking. So. We, we want to keep these general capabilities, um, but we want to declutter um, the curriculum and get rid of some of this stuff so we can focus on it. It's very, politicians like the phrase back to basics, and they like yeah. the idea of just focusing on literacy and numeracy, and we'll just declutter all this other stuff, but we'll also have all these thinking skills and uh, general capabilities, so we'll be able to do that stuff as well. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of process and how, how it can be resisted if, if that's the right thing to do? Well, it's very seductive because if you listen to historians and mathematicians talking about critical thinking, they use very similar terms to describe what they mean by critical thinking. Yeah. And so therefore, it's very easy to assume that this is one skill applied in different domains. But we actually know that they're not because we know that no amount of training people to think critically in history has any impact on their ability to think critically in mathematics. So critical thinking is not a skill. It's a, it's a whole uh, envelope of, of different kinds of skills with superficial similarities that are quite different in their different disciplines. So this whole idea of general capabilities, I think, is, is a very dangerous one. Now, I don't want to go too far down the road. You know, no. humans do transfer. I mean, my favorite illustration of this is a motorist who causes an accident by going the wrong way around a roundabout. And the police officer says to the motorist, have you ever been around a roundabout before? And the motorist says, well, of course I have, but not this one. <laughs> and that's yeah. a joke because we, you know, we know that people can transfer yes. knowledge from one roundabout to another roundabout. Mm. But you know, the, you know, the, the, the big story is that transfer is extremely difficult to, 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 um, to, put, to pull off. And therefore, I think we have to understand that these general capabilities are probably not that general. That's why I think that these so-called um, 21st century skills, collaboration, communication, critical thinking, creativity, problem solving, are best thought of as audit tools for the disciplinary curriculum. So when we're looking at our science curriculum or our geography, geography curriculum, we check to see that we are doing collaboration and communication and critical thinking and creativity and problem solving. And we do that in each subject. So I think that's the, that's, that's the first thing. Now, the, coming to the issue of clutter, that may, you know, I think that we, we can learn a lot from history because in history, it's accepted that you cannot teach every period. And so you have to think about which periods are the most important ones to include. So in England, for example, 
you know, even if you aren't going to teach the importance of chronology, cause and effect, and documentary sources for 1066, you do, you, you know, you're going to be regarded as ignorant if you don't know the significance of 1066 in English history. Yeah. There are some things you just need to know for the, for the facts. But then you also need to develop the ability to think historically. And so I, I think that there are those two different rationales in every subject. There's stuff you need to, just need to know and there's stuff you need to be able to think with. And so then I'm quite taken by the work of people like Wynne Harlan in science and her colleagues who said, basically, we should try to organize our science cur curriculum around maybe 10 big ideas. So the idea is you have a science curriculum with 10 really big ideas that go from age five up to age 18. Yeah. And you basically leave everything else, else out. So, you know, you don't do phases of the moon. because it doesn't go anywhere. You know, if kids don't understand the phases of the moon, nothing bad happens. There's, there's no future scientific thinking that is going to build on that. And so I think we have to be much more parsimonious. And in fact, Jerome Bruner said all this in the 1960s. He said that the spiral curriculum is really important. But here's the important point. He said, if an adult needs to know this, and if the adult would be disadvantaged by the child not learning this now, then you know, if, if the child isn't going to be disadvantaged, then leave it. If the child is going to be disadvantaged, if it has to be learned, and it has to be learned now, then it should be in the curriculum. But if you can leave it a couple of years without damaging the adult, then leave it. And I think that gives you a, a, a much clearer perspective on how you, leave, uh, how you do leave, leave details out and you leave um, blind alleys out, red herrings out. And that would lead us to a much smaller curriculum. And then you'd be able to take more of the students with you. you know, the, the danger is uh, in Germany, they did an experiment where they actually extended the school day to try to help the lower achieving kids catch up. And all that happened was teachers put more content in. Yeah. So the, so the achievement gap actually widened. Oh, wow. Because uh, so, the high working memory kids pulled even further ahead. So um, I, I think that um, we, you know, politicians have to, have to kind of have these self-denying ordinances. Um, I, you've probably heard me talk about this before, but my, my hunch is that curriculum developers can't bear the thought that kids would have spare time on their hands. <laughs> so curricula are designed to keep the fastest learning students busy for the whole year, which means there's just way too much for most people. And, and one way out of this might be for the government to say the national curriculum, whatever it is, or the state curriculum, should only be 50% of the curriculum. And the rest of the curriculum is determined locally. Yeah. So if governments could actually do that and just say, we're, we're going to leave out 50% of the content and you decide what's important for your kids in your context, then there's, there'd be so much some hope, I think, of focusing the curriculum around a small number of really big ideas. And then, of course, we have that very difficult debate about what the big ideas are. Yes. I, I think w one of the things that we see here and, and which I... I struggle to communicate is um, people think that you by stripping out um, stuff decluttering and focusing on literacy uh, kids will get better at literacy but if you do that at the expense of um, teaching them history or science 
then actually you're you're gonna you're not going to improve their literacy because ultimately their reading comprehension depends a lot on their background knowledge which will be drawn from history and science and that's a difficult i think that's a difficult thing to communicate because politicians think well look if we just max out the day so they're doing three hours of literacy a day then we'll fix the literacy issue and we can worry about everything else later yeah well i mean but that's because the politicians don't actually want to look at the research and you can just ask people this question you know which predicts kids comprehension of a passage about baseball best their knowledge of baseball or their reading ability and everybody assumes it's reading ability but it's not it's the knowledge of baseball and so you know there's mass there's now massive amounts of research that as soon as kids get through decoding then what determines progress in reading comprehension is background knowledge and in, in many cases because people want to teach kids these reading comprehension strategies they actually cut down on the amount of reading around subjects that kids do and they do these these things called getting the main idea of a passage as if practicing getting the main idea of a passage is a skill and it's not the way you get the main idea of a passage is to know something about what the person is, is writing about and so um, that, that's why I think we actually need a broad and balanced curriculum because art and music and dance and drama provide the background knowledge that actually really? enables kids to make sense of what they're, of, of what they're um, reading. And if you don't do that, if you narrow the curriculum onto those sorts of skills-based approaches, you actually lower reading performance. And, and, the, and, the, and the research evidence is really quite clear. And things like critical thinking, it's not as if... Uh, anyone is against the concept of critical thinking like if if i say i don't think critical thinking is a general capability that uh, it doesn't mean i'm against critical thinking and it is also i would admit possible to teach a subject like science without really developing any critical thinking by just teaching yes. um kids to recite various uh, facts um I, i'm not sure that that many people in countries like australia or the uk or the us do that I, i've not come across that myself but i would admit that it's definitely possible and so it should be part of our thinking when we're planning the curriculum the more sophisticated um types of analysis of sources of, of problem solving and that sort of thing but it's just that it's not this um global um, transferable skill right and, and, and that's why we need these debates about what it you know, what do you want your subject to be about? So in mathematics, is being able to describe your insights using language part of being good at mathematics? Now, I happen to think it is. A lot of people think it's just about getting the right answer. But the important point, we have that debate about what we, how we define mathematics. You know, in science, people have said, it's really important that people understand how scientists produce knowledge. And I think that's true. But I don't think that should be more than 20% of the curriculum. No. I think 80% of the curriculum should be the knowledge that scientists have produced. And of course, you do some of the stuff about how science produces knowledge, but not the, the majority of the curriculum. But the point is, those debates need to be had at that level of what is this subject about? And then you can get on and teach it. But we, most, we, most people aren't going to have that debate. You're reminding me, well, the comments about maths, we used to, in our VC curriculum here, we used to have these very long-winded extended response questions um, where there was this character called Tasmania Jones, um, yeah. hilarious uh, who would get into um scrapes and and these like he'd be in a in a cavern and it would be shaped like a, a cubic function or something 
And uh, obviously the people that wrote these questions thought they were very funny, but the uh, assessors stripped them out um, about three, four years ago now, because they realized that they disadvantaged um, students who English was not their first language. Um, and so they clearly made the decision that it's, it's about the um, mathematical understanding that we want to assess, not language components associated with it or, or very wordy word problems. And so they made that decision. And it's interesting that they would do that. And I suppose that reflects on, you know, if, if a student can do the maths and is very talented, but can't really describe or explain what they're doing because they have limited language skills, does that make them a good mathematician? Does it not? It's an interesting question. Absolutely. And I think that there's, there are conflicting rationales here. So one is an epistemological imperative and one is a moral imperative. So, I mean, let's take another example, which is um, uh, mental rotation of three-dimensional solids. So, you know, this, this as a skill seems to exhibit one of the largest sex differences in all of cognitive psychology. And so the question is, should that be in our curriculum? Well, you know, that is a mathematical skill and you, that, that kind of rationale would indicate that we should keep it in. But because people use math scores to predict whether people should go to study maths at university, uh, if, if females are not as good at the skill as, as males, then it's completely wrong to actually generalize from that, that the, the females can't be as good as, math, as mathematics. So, so I think we have to understand that every time we make these choices about how to define a subject, there'll be trade-offs. And so, for, you know, for example, I happen to think that, that writing and describing your insights, you know, doing an investigation and then expressing what you found in words is part of being a mathematician. But I'm also aware that this then advantages students with the linguistic skills. And particularly, you know, actually can often lead to a, uh, uh, boys performing less well than girls in mathematics. Yeah. And some people think that boys should be better at mathematics so they want to strip out the language. And so you have this debate about whether this is part of, it, part of maths or not. For me, a mathematician should be able to describe their mathematical insights in language. And therefore, it is part of mathematics. But I understand that other people might have different, different, different views of what the nature of mathematics is. The important point is we need to have this discussion, certainly at a national curriculum level, about yeah. what we mean by the subject. At the moment, um, I, I think I, I write a little bit about curriculum in, in my uh, new book. I've just sent that off to the publishers, so it's all fresh in my mind at the moment. And right. I think... And what I say there is that too many of these decisions are, at the moment are just simply devolved to individual classroom teachers. Um, there is some structure around assessments, but then it's not necessarily transparent as to how the people who constructed the assessments came to those decisions. And I think we need a more, we need some kind of forum um, for a national debate. It wouldn't involve everyone because not everyone's interested, but the interested parties can uh, come to a decision about and, and with history as well you know what what should be in the history curriculum what are the yes. most important things and it will never satisfy everyone but there is a mechanism that comes to the national consensus position which is provisional and will be revised in a few years mm -hmm. time and um and then we can sort these kinds of issues out absolutely uh, the really important point for me and this is my putting my assessment hat back on, is that if you don't define the construct, this is what you know, what psychology call the construct, you know, the, the thing that you're talking about, like mathematics. Yeah. If you don't define it well, you give the assessors far too much power. 
because they end up operationalizing it when they actually decide on this assessment rather than that assessment. Yeah. And what I'm saying is assessment construction or assessment development should be a largely technical exercise in that people should agree about whether this assessment accurately captures mathematics or history as you've defined it. Right now, people disagree about assessments because they disagree about the subject. Yep. And they think they're having an argument about assessment, but they're really not. They're having an assessment about the, 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 the discipline, which only surfaces because they're talking about the assessments, because the assessments basically operationalize constructs. When you put an assessment out there, you are forced to say, this kid can do this and this kid can't do this. So assessments basically take you off the fence and you have to say, being good at maths involves being able to answer this question correctly. Yeah, and it washes back into teaching because if you're teaching a subject which has got a standardised assessment at the end of it, many don't, but if you, are, if you do in one that does, then you'd be foolish as a teacher not to look at that assessment and the sorts of things that the kids are expected to do on it. Absolutely. Um, in, the same way, in the same way that sprinting coaches know what it is their athletes have yeah. to do at the Olympics. Yeah. It's not meant to be a secret. No. Um, I first got interested in uh, education research um, by reading Hattie's Visible Learning. Um, and I, I think I must have first picked that up in about 2010, 2011. And from that, I found a reference to uh, Kirshner Sweller Clark paper, Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Doesn't Work. And that got me interested in cognitive load theory. And that's why I'm now doing a PhD in that area. Um, so I have a lot to thank. Um, Hattie Four in picking that book up in the first place. However, since in the intervening years, I've become slightly skeptical of um, the meta-analysis and the meta-meta-analysis uh, that uh, visible learning is is based on. The the the, the sort of um, averaging effect sizes from uh, different studies. And now you've written about that uh, yourself. Um, what are the issues around meta-analysis and meta-meta-analysis as, as far as you're concerned? Well, I think, first of all, I think John Hattie's done a huge service in helping move the debate away from measures of statistical significance towards the size of the effect. Yeah. So I think effect sizes, as proposed by Gene Glass back in the 1970s, were a huge step forward, particularly outside education. People don't realize that effect sizes were invented by an educationist and are now used in medicine and things like that. So I think if, you know, the, the moving, away to, moving away from is it significant to how big an effect did we have is very important. The thing that people, I think, have failed to grasp is that effect sizes in general, and meta-analysis in particular, are really hard to do well in education. Now, they've transformed medical sciences. And they've transformed medical sciences because they don't tend to use effect sizes because they don't need to. So, for example, if you're comparing different um, um, antirhythmic drugs in the, in the case of myocardial infarction, the, the, the outcome measure is death. And yeah. there's not much doubt about that. You know, uh, you know if, if you're looking at a flu drug, you know, to, time to discharge from hospital or time to recovery, maybe some flexibility about that, but people use the same measure. So you're actually comparing the same measure. When you start trying to use effect sizes to compare two different uh, investigations of cooperative learning, you're into very dodgy territory because one of those measures might be very sensitive to what teachers do and one might not. So let me give you an example of the magnitude of the problem. 
if the measure you're using, and this is work of um, Maria Ruiz Primo and Min Lee, if you're doing research on feedback, if you use a, a measure of achievement that is quite close to the instruction, quite close to what it is that was taught, you find an effect size of 1.2. If you use huge, well, it's, no, it's actually ridiculously large. Yeah. If you use a more standardized measure, like a standardized assessment of that subject, you can affect size of 0.2. So you get six times bigger effects if you use a sensitive measure than if you use an insensitive measure. And the point is, when you start adding these numbers together, you need a handle on whether the measures were similar. Now, John says these things average out, but he has no basis for assuming that. You just don't know what measures were used. So when you take somebody's meta-analysis, unless they tell you what measures were used in the studies, in each of the studies, then you don't know whether this is an estimate that can be relied on or not. And this is why the whole, the, the, the data in the Visible Learning Project makes no sense at all. So for example, John Hattie says that one year's learning is 0.4 standard deviations, which is a reasonable average. It's about 1.5 standard deviations for five-year-olds and it's about 0.2 for 15-year-olds. So if we're gonna have a single figure for the entire compulsory school range range, I'm okay with 0.4. He then claims that teacher collective efficacy has an effect size of 1.6. Now, that just makes no sense at all. What he's saying is that if teachers are collectively efficacious, then you get five years learning every year. Kids will be ready to graduate high school by the age of eight. It simply isn't gonna happen. So I think just we can tell that there's something wrong with the magnitudes of those effect sizes because of the kinds of results we're getting. The other problem, is that John uses these things, uh, he calls them influences. And so let's take collective efficacy again. What he's, find, what he's found is that in schools where teachers feel collectively efficacious, they feel they can actually get on and do their jobs, student achievement is higher. But I think the correlation goes the other way. I think the causation goes the other way. Yeah. I think in schools full of highly motivated kids, Teachers say, I can get on and do my job. Yeah. And in schools full of kids who are dis demotivated, teachers say, I can't get on and do my job. So it's not teacher collective efficacy that's causing high student achievement. It's high student achievement that's causing teacher collective efficacy. Same thing can be said for um, the, the category of, of, that, that John calls um, student self-reported grades. It's not that getting students to report their achievement increases their ach achievement. It is that smart kids know that they're smart. So because he calls all these things influences, irrespective of the directional causality, because he ignores the, um, the file draw effect whereby non-significant results don't get published, because he ignores all these other things that go wrong. Um, I, mean, I think even meta-analysis is very difficult in education. And the, the meta-analysis meta is basically a non-starter. There is no reason to, to trust any of the numbers in visible learning. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't take the work seriously. I think his idea that we should know, know thy impact is important, and we should think very carefully about um, whether we take seriously particular research studies. But I think the idea of meta-analyzing meta-analyses makes no sense at all statistically. Most statisticians agree with me. And I think what we should be doing, if we want to find out what we should be doing 
is finding single meta-analyses of the things that we're really interested in. And ultimately, even meta-analysis, I think, is, is risky in education because you can't conclude that this intervention called collaborative learning was the same intervention in two different classrooms because they're yeah. mediated by the teacher. Well, I find reading meta-analyses very frustrating because the, if I read a research paper, um, the first thing I do is I go to the method section. And the first thing I do at, once I'm in the method section is uh, look at the comparison condition because there's a lot of uh, hocus pocus that goes on there and they will describe something in the abstract as, I don't know, direct instruction, for instance, because that's something I'm particularly interested in. But then you look at the comparison condition and what they mean by that is that kids are reading from a textbook and answering questions or something, which is no, no, uh, nothing like direct instruction as I would understand it. So I'll, I'll go to those comparison conditions. Now, fortunately, once you stick those studies into meta-analysis, your chance of actually figuring out what the comparison conditions were is, is minor. They're rarely mentioned. Um, they're sometimes mentioned in good quality literature reviews. And so I would suggest a literature review really, to me, is more important than uh, a, a meta-analysis. Because in a literature review, they'll, they'll discuss the, diff the comparison conditions and they'll make judgments on that. And, but in a meta-analysis, it's more about... Um, mining for the effect sizes and the methodology used to search for the studies and there's very little mention of those critical comparison conditions. Absolutely. So you know, if we are comparing two different approaches to teaching kids maths for the VCE, yeah. then we wouldn't need effect size, we would just use VCE grades as the yeah. outcome measure or ATAR ranks. You know, so basically the irony is you can only use effect sizes if you're sure that the outcome measures are equally sensitive to the effects of the instruction and the interventions are, are the same intervention delivered in different settings. So the irony is effect sizes are only justifiable when they're not necessary. Yeah. In education. Yeah. So that's why I... You know, I, I've now concluded that, in fact, we should not be doing meta-analyses to guide teachers and, and leaders. We should be doing evaluations of products. Yeah. So basically, we should be having a program like the, the formative assessment professional development package that I developed. So I'm not interested in professional development on formative assessment. I'm interested in what happens when teachers are given this package, this set of things to do, this textbook versus that textbook. You know, then we'll get some insights that can actually guide classroom practice. But right now, we're not learning anything from the research that's getting done. I think that's very important. When, when you say this textbook versus that textbook, I've argued um, a number of times for three-arm trials because, and I think the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK should be doing three-arm trials. Because what typically happens is they'll do a study, they'll run doing something, uh, against not doing anything, business as usual. And, and usually, not always, but usually there's some kind of effect. But there's a really uh, important study, um, well, it's important to me, I think. There's a, uh, a study, Kroesberg and, and colleagues in um, the Netherlands, and they uh, ran a study of maths interventions. So they had, but they had it three-armed. So they had um, kids who got no intervention, and this was in... 
um, regular schools and uh, special schools in the Netherlands. And these are kids who were struggling with math. So they had a set criteria for selecting them. So some kids got no intervention. Some kids got a constructivist style intervention. Some kids got a direct instruction style intervention. Now, both of the interventions worked. Um, but the effect size within that one study where everything is directly comparable for the direct instruction was greater than the constructivist one. But, and because they were all in the same study, those three things, and using the same assessment instruments, the same kids, the same criteria, you can be more um, confident about the, the, the relative effectiveness of the two interventions. And I think if we had a program of doing lots of these kind of three-arm trials, and we could say, well, gradually you could triangulate and come up with something a little like Hattie's League table, but by bit by bit by doing lots of different trials. Well, well, well I'm not sure about that because I don't know what direct instruction meant in that particular study because it's mediated by the teacher. Yeah. And so this, is, this takes us on to this really important issue of fidelity of implementation. Yeah. So researchers often say, well, the intervention wasn't implemented with fidelity. Yeah. And I'm saying that's just blaming teachers. For me, the crucial you know, the researcher's question is, does it work if teachers do it properly? That's, yeah. not, that's not the school leader's question. The school leader's question is, if we implement this program, will things get better? So I actually don't, I'm not interested in fidelity of implementation because it's a cop-out. What I want to know is, if we, if we give teachers this textbook rather than that textbook, do yeah. kids learn more? Even then, generalizing to other contexts is difficult, but at least we know what it is we're comparing, which is two different textbooks or two different, two different you know, professional development programs. And as I said, I, I think we need to actually start uh, researching you know, head to head and, and maybe three arm trials, but I think that as long as the two arm trials are okay, as long as the, the, the non-experimental arm is business as usual over an extended period of time and leaving people to their own devices to do whatever they would do normally. So in the evaluation of our embedding formative assessment program, it was you know, half the schools, you know, all schools invited to participate, randomized, half got the materials, half just got told to get on with it and got given some cash. Yeah. And the outcome measure was the kids' results on exams two years later. So, you know, we had an attention to treat trial with a clear package of stuff. So I think people can now understand, we know what the intervention was. Some people got given these professional development materials yes. and were told how to use it. And so that actually gives you some idea of what to do. The fact that, you know, if you were told that these teachers formed networked learning communities and did some problem solving, even if it's successful, you have no idea what it is that was effective. And so, so you have, I don't think you've learned anything. And until we have much better theorization of the kinds of interventions that we're comparing, then I think we'd be better off comparing products rather than um, initiatives. Yeah, you do get quite close to this no true Scotsman type fallacy. Like when we, so I've done this little experiment in yeah. myself, I'm the developer, I've run it. It worked, but then I give it to these teachers. Um, well, it didn't work, but it's because they just didn't do it properly, did they? they did, and if they'd yeah. done it properly, of course it would have worked. And that yes. does get around that issue. We don't define it as uh, the fidelity to the um, intervention. It's more the package itself. And, um, yeah, it's, it's the intention to treat. Yeah. And that's the crucial thing. You yeah. know, basically, does this, yeah, if we make this decision, 
to make our to use this particular package for our professional development for the next two years, will things get better? And those kinds of answers, I think, are helpful to school leaders. You know, it still might not work in your school. Yes. The, the, the context of your school might make it so different from other schools that it still doesn't work. But at least you know what you're comparing rather than some vague imprecation to sort of, you know, get teachers to meet once a week for an hour to talk about, you know, their personal, their personal problems or whatever. Because um, you have no idea, you know, even if you're successful, you have no idea what was successful. Yeah. And the, that intention to treat type study um, then gets around those problems because we know, uh, like, it doesn't matter how, um, how much fidelity people use the package, but we would have to design, presumably, for the package to be effective, we'd have to design it in such a way that, um, that, that fidelity was easy to achieve. It's no use, um, and I think I, I often talk about differentiation, um, differentiation, if you do it perfectly, um, so, sorry, let's just rephrase that. Let's assume that if you do differentiation perfectly, it has a large effect. But that's not the important point. If it's exactly. very hard to do differentiation perfectly, then it's not a great intervention. Right. And this is what the American writer Robert Pondicio yeah. says, basically, you know, you don't want to be pushing approaches to teaching that can only be implemented by superheroes. Yeah. You need things that work when ordinary humans do this. And I think that's, that's something what we, what, and that's why we need large scale trials we, and, and, and intention to treat and just saying, yeah, I mean, so for example, you know, in the Education Endowment Foundation's evaluation of our program, we found that in, in many cases, fidelity of implementation was not good. But we don't use that as an excuse. We say, yeah. okay, so what, 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 did, what did we make so difficult? So we can actually then research how to make this stuff easier for schools to do without losing the active ingredients. Yeah. But that's the researcher's issue. We, you know, too often, fidelity of implementation is just used to blame teachers for not implementing the program. But if it was too hard to implement in real schools by ordinary teachers, then it's irrelevant anyway, so who cares? Yeah, so the, the, the research has got to come up with uh, proposals for teachers to follow that can be enacted by human beings. Well, and of course, that's was, that was at the heart of the work of Hilda Tarber in the US in the 1960s, Lawrence Stenhouse in the 1970s in England. The fact is that no initiative can be implemented in a classroom in a way intended by the inventor. Teachers have to make these things work. And that's why you have to collaborate with teachers. Um, just as an interesting story, when, we, when Paul Black and I first started working with these maths and science teachers in, um, in, in England with Christine Harrison and Claire Lee, um, the teachers thought we were using some perverted model of discovery learning where we knew what we wanted them to do, but we weren't going to tell them, so they had to discover it for themselves. <laughs> and after about three months, we realized, the teachers realized that we didn't know what this was going to look like. Yeah. We just knew there were some ideas here that the research said were likely to be exciting and important and helpful in teaching. Yeah. And the teachers tried, then had to figure out what that meant for their own classrooms. And that's where the work blossomed, when teachers and researchers collaborated on figuring out how we make this work in classrooms. Because if you don't do that, then you're basically irrelevant. Absolutely. Well, that's what we're all about. And that's what it's all about, connecting teachers and 
researchers and trying to get the word out. Look, uh, Dylan, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Um, and I hope uh, the, the situation with COVID and all that gets under control in the US. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for, for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you.